Um, good evening. My name is Irene Skolnick, and on behalf of the Events Committee of Penn, may I say what a special privilege and honor it is to welcome both Umberto Eco and Susan Sontag on the same evening, and to be called upon to introduce two such celebrated writers, if ever the cliché were deserved, who need no introduction. Tonight, we engage in magic. We join, as it were, two centuries separated by 500 years, a half a millennium, no less, through a common, enduring bond. We start with the complex, perplexing world of, excuse me, of the 14th century. We journey to the complex, perplexing world of the 20th century, and the linkage between them is the magic of literature that in the hands and minds of consummately skilled writers is the common cause of human experience. First, the 14th century, Umberto Eco, the world-famous Bolognese semiotician and Joyce Authority is the author of many works on language, literature, and art. But it was his first novel, The Name of the Rose, that as the LA Times said, brought us a new world in the tradition of Rabelais, Cervantes, Stern, Melville, Dostoevsky, Joyce himself, and Garcia Marquez. Quote, there is a kind of novel that changes our mind, replaces our reality with its own. We live in a new world after we've read it. So imagine, if you will, critical acclaim for a philosophical novel masked as a detective story, or a detective story masked as a historical novel, or even better, a blend of all three, an alchemical marriage of murder mystery and morality tale, a truly popular novel, a number one bestseller thriller, a page turner about ideas. My own personal connection with Umberto Eco is that I was part of the Harcourt Brace Yovanovitch team that published The Name of the Rose. All of us involved in the excitement of publishing this extraordinary novel, steeped in metaphysics and theological debate, were delighted when it jumped onto the bestseller list within two weeks of its publication last June. And as Umberto will vouch for, very tickled when it tied for first place with Return of the Jedi. <laughs> By mid-July, it was cluttering beach blankets and sun decks. And this summer, it has continued its best-selling career in paperback, I believe a million and a half copies to date. Those of us caught up in the excitement of publishing Umberto Eco responded to his specifically Italian quality, which both Helen Wolfe and Dranko Willen have described as a unique gift of clothing formidable erudition in engaging playfulness. Now, in one gigantic leap, the 20th century, Susan Sontag occupies a special place in the modern American letters. Among her most recent books are I, Etc., Stories, and Under the Sign of Saturn, a collection of essays published by Farrow, Strauss, and Giroux. I don't think it's unfair to say that since the early 1960s, Miss Sontag has been the chief explicator in the United States of the newest forms in literature, art, and culture in graceful, elegant, critical essays that are considered classics. I simply cannot improve on the brilliant summary contained in Elizabeth Hardwick's introduction to a Susan Sontag reader. If I'm, 
I'm now going to read. Thinking about Susan Sontag in the middle of her career is to feel the happiness of more, more, nothing ended. An exquisite responsiveness of this kind is unpredictable, although one of the intentions on, of her work is to find the central, to tell us what we are thinking, what is happening to our minds and to culture. There are politics, fashions, art itself, and of course the storehouse of learning to be looked at again and again in her own way. I notice that in her late work, she stresses the notion of pleasure in the arts, pleasure in thinking. Only the serious can offer us that rare, warm, bright-hearted felicity. Now, if we are to begin to understand the relation of the aesthetic and the ethical, the shifting boundaries between popular culture and high art and the meaning of the modern or the postmodern novel, we are undeniably in good company tonight. I know you will join me in extending a generous welcome to these two dazzling writers. Um, a cautionary tale. <laughs> there will be a, sh a short question and answer period. Please come to the microphones on the aisle. We do not permit the taking of photographs during the event. Please do not take photographs. And you are all invited to attend the reception at the end of the event. Umberto Eco and I have uh, uh, known each other, I think, about 16 or 17 years. And uh, we, we share many interests in common. And we uh, are both uh, compulsive travelers and, and meet uh, fairly regularly uh, in a lot of different places in the world. We are both. Uh, polymaths, people interested in everything. We have, uh, for both of us, uh, the experience of certain uh, currents in French thought, and particularly uh, the uh, example uh, and the writings of Roland Barthes uh, has come to be very important. It was important to neither of us when we began uh, uh, our studies and when we were already both writing and doing work which in which our present work is uh, is already uh, encapsulated so it isn't a question of, of influence so much as uh, a happy uh, discovery and confirmation at a certain point in both our developments as as writers and some of the early conversations that I remember having with Umberto Eco were about Bart and our, our different and very complicated feelings uh, about his work. I remember the last time that uh, Bart was in New York, which was in 1978, two years before his death. He gave a, a lecture at NYU in another building here. Uh, which was extremely moving. It was also a lecture that he gave in, in Paris and, and elsewhere uh, uh, as he traveled around. Uh, he talked about coming to the end of something in his work. He began actually, well, he, it, it was a lecture divided into two parts. He began by quoting the first lines of Proust, uh, 
for a long time I used to go to bed early and talked about the dream state uh, and gave a very beautiful analysis of Proust's great novel in terms of a, a new logic of association, very beautiful and original analysis. At a certain point in this lecture, he suddenly and vertiginously moved to the first line of Dante uh, in the middle of my life in the dark, I was in a dark path, in a dark forest, and I found myself in a path. And he talked about what it might mean to be in the middle of one's life, uh, what it might mean to take stock of one's life and feel that one had to do something new. And Bart very touchingly, and he was, uh, of course, only two years away from his own death, said, I feel that right now, this is the middle of my life. This was a man already in his early 60s. I feel that I've come to the end of something. I've come to the end of a certain kind of writing, uh, a certain kind of appreciation, a certain kind of pleasure. And I feel the need to, uh, uh, to move to the novel, to write fiction and to transpose my concerns from uh, the way they have expressed themselves, both in the literary essay and in the uh, academic analysis. These are, of course, not, not his terms at all. I'm paraphrasing and adulterating his thought, but I think it's not inappropriate in the present context. Uh, I feel that, he said, that it, 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 I feel moved no longer to repeat myself, but to, but to take the risk or the leap of going to another kind of discourse, which would be fictional rather than essayistic. My own involvement with Barth's writing uh, has always been to say he was first and foremost a writer. He was, if you will, our Valerie, uh, Valerie of the post-war period, except that he, didn't, he wasn't also a poet. Uh, but he was, first of all, a writer and uh, not an academic figure. The fact is that although Barth, two years before his death, spoke of this uh, beginning of a new life in which he would become a fiction writer, in which he hoped to become a fiction writer, and his model certainly was Proust, as he made shyly and delicately clear in this extraordinarily moving and finally a very profoundly autobiographical lecture that he gave. Uh, the fact is that he didn't ever move to fiction. Uh, he remained within the, the, the profoundly complex and very large uh, essayistic uh, uh, discourse that he had constructed himself, which could be extremely literary on the one hand and very technical on the other. Now, Umberto Eco seems to me, and this is the way I'd like to open the conversation between us, which is uh, an entirely spontaneous one, uh, not prepared uh, at all, uh, he seems, in one sense, to have fulfilled Barth's program. Uh, that is to say, he's someone who has been interested in everything, has written uh, appreciations and analyses of popular culture, on the one hand, as Barth did in his early book, uh, Mythologies, and as he continued to do uh, throughout his life. He has also written highly technical um, um, analyses of culture and literature and different individual works of art or bodies of art which seem very central to academic discourse. He is a distinguished teacher, as of course Bart was as well. And at a certain point, he has been able to move 
to the realm of fiction. It is that contrast that I would like, at any rate, if he agrees with me, or he can do anything he likes, of course, uh, to talk about. Uh, I am not now talking about the particular nature of the name of the rose, although that certainly may come out in our conversation. But what it means for him to have done what Bart said that he would like to do, and of course uh, say it uh, at, a, at a considerably earlier point in his own career. Umberto. Well, uh, Susan, as you said, we have many things in common because both we are interested in everything. But the, 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 the sentence is not complete. We are interested in everything but nothing else. And it is this nothing else which is absolutely important and characterize the real polymath. Uh, because the, there are disgraceful uh, uh, persons interested in nothing else. Uh, only. Um, and I, I want to, uh, to remember other two occasions, uh, other two chances we had to, to chat together. Once it was on the Hudson River about death and theology. Do you remember? I remember very well. And I also and remember that you said that you had an image of somebody 100 years from now in a library <laughs> reading a book by you, <laughs> and that when you wrote, you thought very much of this person. Well, uh, who would read you in a library. You uh, see so the image of the library was already very important. You see that each, each of us is born with a unique idea <laughs> in his own mind. <laughs> and, uh, and then the second, uh, the second memory is once in your apartment, I told you that I was interested in heresies. Mm. And you showed me an immense library of yours mm. with the best books on uh, Heretics, uh, medieval uh, yes. uh, heretics. Uh, what? Well, so uh, I have to thank you of, of that uh, exploration <laughs> in, a, in a mysterious medieval uh, library. And uh, the, the, the story of Bart is uh, very curious, a part of all the influences mm. and, the, and the, the, the great love uh, I, I had for him. I think that Bart was all along his life victim, the victim of a tragic misunderstanding. He believed, but you said that, he believed to be a critic and he expected to become a creative writer. Mm -hmm. He never understood, and he died with this sorrow, he never understood that he was a great novelist, a great creative uh, uh, writer, and Fragment de discours amoureux is a is a great is a great novel, and some of his essays or his mythology are real uh, creative uh, writing. So there was no uh, uh, necessity, no need for Bart to write a novel, uh, and probably he, he wouldn't. Uh, yes, uh, and he I believed more probably he, he, he couldn't because he was already writing a novel all along his uh, uh, life uh, as an as an essayist. That was his misunderstanding, a curious misunderstanding, a pathetic misunderstanding. And it, it, uh, I agree with you entirely, particularly the late books, the, the what's called in English the lover's discourse, uh, the, the book that he wrote about, this, the, one of the most extraordinary autobiographical texts ever written that's called Bart on Bart, uh, the last book uh, uh, that's translated into English as Camera Obscura. This is a kind of autobiographical trilogy that is one of the, m the most extraordinary literary achievements of, uh, of the last, I don't know, how many decades. 
I think there are a few people who recognize that. I remember that Don Bartholomew said to me when he read the, the about we once were talking about Lover's Discourse, and he said, "That's a, you know a superb contemporary novel. That's the way you should write a novel." Uh, and Bart didn't understand, indeed, yeah. that he was. Uh, he had already transgressed in an absolutely fascinating way the boundary between fiction and nonfiction. And he was suffering uh, because and he didn't the, understand. And the conventional, he wanted to celebrate, he wanted to write a kind of elegiac, long narrative about his childhood and his relationship to his mother because he loved mm. Proust and it, he, he couldn't have done it. He was not a modernist in his taste, but he was a modernist in his practice. Uh, and nothing could have been more modernist than his using these uh, non-fiction forms uh, as essentially uh, 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 forms of fiction in the, way, in the same spirit that uh, uh, Godard said, I want to uh, make documentaries that are like fiction films and uh, fiction films that are like documentaries. Barton, as practiced, was a very modernist writer, but not in his taste. Now, to, to, to come, so I, I, and you, I, don't and agree, you. I don't agree with you. That you are not I, an, ar I you're did, not an I artist. I did what Bart, what Bart. Uh, I don't uh, think you did, did either. Did <laughs> he, he did what, it, what, what he did exactly. My problem was an autumn. I had no this kind of uh, complex of mm. suffering of Bart. I was not blackmailed by the idea I had to write uh, creatively. Why? Uh, when there was the discussion of my doctoral dissertation, my, my doctoral dissertation was uh, upon a, a very crucial problem, the, the, the existence of an aesthetic theory in Thomas Aquinas, uh, were except a few great scholars, the common opinion was that there was no aesthetic theory. Well, James in, in Joyce Thomas. thought there was an aesthetic theory, and the port portrait of the artist he is... He pretended, but uh, in order to make his own. His own. Uh, <laughs> but he hung it on Thomas he, Aquinas. He, 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 he did it in order to cheat the Jesuits, to convince that the theory was the Aquinas, it was his own. He, in this way, he understood, he understood Aquinas better than a lot of Thomas, but he was, he was cheating. But in no, well, I just have <laughs> to tell you, Umberto, because you didn't grow, you grew up in a Catholic country. Uh, I went to a Thomist university in this country, and we were taught that uh, Thomas Aquinas had an aesthetic theory, and it all came from James Joyce's interpretation yeah, of yeah. it. So but it, did, uh, it did have a status here. Well, but I was living not in a Catholic ca country, mm -hmm. but in an idealistic country dominated by the thought of Benedetto Croce, who <laughs> said that uh, Aquinas <laughs> didn't have an aesthetic theory. Okay. So it uh, remained so to you to discover it. So I had to make my dissertation as a sort of uh, uh, detective story, uh, following scattered quotations putting them together, uh, uh, starting a research without knowing where I could arrive, then arriving at a certain point. And the professor who uh, commented my dissertation said, well, it's a beautiful dissertation. I got a good, uh, a good, good point. Uh, but he said, it's a good dissertation. But we see there the typical immaturity of the young scholar, because the, the ma mature, great scholars makes his own research, then he spells out only the final results. Eco, on the contrary, told us the story of his research. I understood that he was right, I did exactly that, and he was wrong because every scholar has to do that. And from that point on, every book, scholarly book I have written, 
was the story of the detection that led me to my conclusion. So my, my need for, for telling story, my, my fonction fabulatrice, was completely satisfied by my scholarly activity. <laughs> every, every scholarly book was a mystery story, and I was enjoying it this way. So when I started the novel, it was for accidental reasons, but not because I had to, 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 to meet this final uh, end of my, uh, of my life. I was not blackmailed by, by, the, 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 by the anxiety by the of, of the repressed the crea creativity. I believe to be enormously creative. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. That's exactly what I expected you to say. No, of course, I, I think there is, a, for many people who turn, uh, uh, who have some intellectual or scholarly uh, uh, interest and then turn to fiction, uh, there is a, 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 a often a kind of anti-intellectual defense of what they do, having mm. that they now emerge from the cold realm of scholarship to the warm realm of fiction. I don't for a minute think that you were going to say that. I also think, I also thought that you, what you might say, because I, I think indeed your case is a contrasting one to Bart's, that you weren't trying to be a writer as a, an essayist uh, in the sense that Bart clearly was trying to be a writer. I mean, the reason, in effect, that he didn't need to go to fiction is that he always was trying to be a writer as a writer of essays. Whereas uh, a great deal, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say all, but a great deal of your nonfiction is functionally written. I don't mean that it is insensitive to language, but the language is relatively transparent. Yeah, uh, yeah. It is the vehicle of the argument. There's a great deal that Bart does that is, that is in, in all his writing, which is more than simply bear the argument. So uh, you, were you were discovering something else in writing uh, a novel. Oh, uh, no. The novel my, was my not novel simply... My novel is badly written. Um, from the point of view of literature, it's not written at all. Uh, many critics told that. Do you think the, Engl it, do you it, think it, the it, English it translation improves the, trans it? The, transla the translation is better. I knew you were going to say that, too. <laughs> you think, yeah, well, William Weaver, who is a superb translator, uh, you think that he has made your novel more uh, fluent, let's say, um, closer to a kind of... Uh, of prose, standard of prose excellence in English. Of course, the demands of prose excellence in English and in Italian are very what, different. What, in know. what sense is it not well written? Is it possible to describe it uh, in a way that uh, doesn't uh, require knowledge of Italian? I, 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 I tell you the truth. I, I wanted to play a masochist uh, game. Uh, some critics said it was well written, and some others said, well, but it's uh, written like a popular novel. Uh, there is no research for style. I don't know. But is I there? Is but no, but this is I a question. Why, I know why they, they got this impression. I have written this in this postscript to the name mm. of, of the Rose. I, it was the, the first time in my life I, I, I wrote a novel. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's not like, like you, that you uh, alternate mm -hmm. uh, the, the activity of novelist with the uh, activity of, of critic, and, and probably it, it uh, uh, provokes in, in, in your writing a sort of a continuous exchange between the two uh, activities. I discovered for the first time that to write a novel is not a problem of language. Uh-huh. 
Many uh, people would dispute that. Oh, yes, I know. I, 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 I believe that to write poetry is a problem of language. To write a novel is not immediately a problem of language. It is a cosmological problem. You have to build up a world. You have to conceive of a, of a world completely furnished, completely organized, and when you know exactly how this world could, could be and what should happen in, in this world, uh, the language follows you. Uh, to quote uh, Cicero, rem tene verba sequentum. And in poetry, it's absolutely contrary. You have first in your mind a, a linguistic rhythm, so, and then you adapt your thought, uh, what you have to say. I, I make a, 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 an analysis on two, on two uh, pages of Manzoni, you know, the greatest Italian writer of the 19th century, who wrote a novel, The Betrothed, and who wrote many, many, many poems. And I analyzed all the versions of the poem uh, La Pentecoste. It changed many times. And uh, I saw very clearly that he changed because he was looking for a rhythm, looking for a certain linguistic machinery. And uh, in order to reach the right way of speaking, he was, well, let's say, not ready to change his theological opinion because he was a faithful Catholic, but uh, to change a lot of ideas, provided the rhythm, the language worked. On the contrary, if you read the first page of Promessi Sposi, which looks so beautiful, so syntactically complex, uh, with the two long periods in the, in the first page, you understand that this syntax is depending from a, a Weltanschauung, from a way he has chosen to see the world by an helicopter descending from a geographical point of view to a topographical point of view to reach the ground and then, like with the camera, to put the camera this way, seeing for the first time the mountains uh, uh, by profile and then traveling. It's a perfect, uh, it's a perfect uh, cinematic uh, mm, machinery. Obviously, uh, Manzoni couldn't know uh, cinema, but he looked at the world with the eyes of the providence of the end. But so there's a lot of cinematic, uh, 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 the many cinematic writers in the 19th century. Dickens also, the yeah. beginnings of his novels are very cinematic, as Eisenstein pointed out. So it, uh, the, the, we know that the cinema imagination uh, existed uh, before existed, the cinema. Existed before. What, what, uh, what I want to say is that the novelist first has this idea about the structure of a certain uh, world. And then language follows. In this sense, I was not so strictly interested in language, and I, I decided to adopt the style of the medieval chroniqueur, and they were journalists. They were speaking didactically, uh, simply, with some absolute ablative and some list, uh, because it was a rhetorical uh, habit. Well, you had a screen, and you had a model, and the model was not one which was tremendously ambitious linguistically. But if, if I can go back to the general point before we perhaps talk about, about, your, about your novel. Uh, Flaubert in Madame Bovary advanced in conversation and in letters, as we know, extremely uh, formalist uh, notions about what he was doing. And we know that the effort that went into the writing of Madame Bovary, uh, that sometimes it would take him uh, uh, several days to, to figure out a sentence or a paragraph. Yet it is certainly the imagining of a world. It is a totally successful um, cosmological achievement. 
if what you say is true, why would Flaubert have to work so hard? Uh, and then why, why, would there, why is there such a marked difference, let's say, between uh, Flaubert on the one hand or Balzac on the other? If I can throw in another, another uh, uh, parallel, you, in your brilliant essay on James Bond, <laughs> Uh, uh, Umberto Eco is a great student of uh, mass of popular literature, and and how how is how its uh, what its recipes are. You make out actually make out a case in your essay on the Bond novels that that Fleming is not a bad writer, and that he's a, he is a, a compared to other writers uh, that seem to be comparable to him, is actually rather well written. And uh, you instance very, uh, some paragraphs of description, uh, vi violent description, morbid description, for instance, which, uh, uh, and contrast them with the usual kind of writing of this, of this sort of, uh, of, in this genre, to point out that there is a flavor, a personal flavor, a distinctive flavor in the Fleming books, which makes them uh, uh, literarily more ambitious than one might think, given the extreme conventionality of their themes, of their topoi. So even if one has a very functional idea about narrative and very stereotyped uh, 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 genre rules, one can be making an effort with the language. And I can't believe that you didn't do that. For, isn't it true, Umberto, that the kind of corrections that you make when you're revising a novel are different than the corrections you make when you are correcting an essay yeah. or an article. Sure. Sure. What, what you actually want to change, you have a different motive for crossing out a word uh, or a sentence or rebuilding a paragraph. Uh, Susan, I, I, I was not saying that uh, uh, language is immaterial uh, in a novel. I said that it comes second. That's mm -hmm. my point. Uh, first, uh, to, 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 to imagine a novel is to, to imagine a, a story, a sequence. I am Aristotelian in this sense. Mm -hmm. uh, to, to imagine a mythos, uh, uh, and a, a mythos uh, telling a, a pragma, a sequence of actions. But who and would the main logic that? is the logic of actions. Then language follows, and, we have, and you have, as Flaubert did, to find for le mot juste, mm -hmm. but juste under under which profile? Why just? Only just uh, syntactically? Uh, take this essay of Proust on Flaubert in which he analyzed the last lines of l'éducation sentimentale when he says and he traveled, uh, it, I, I, I don't remember it, but it's a, it's a good example of a, a paratactical uh, construction. And I think that probably Flaubert worked uh, months to, 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 to find those ten final lines, but uh, the syntax, and maybe the lexicon of those final lines, is just right in order to give this idea of the movement of Frédéric Moreau, this, this uh, uh, attitude to, to travel, to, 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 to see new countries, this sense of movement. That's it, what, what I mean by cosmological uh, element uh, I, I, in the novel. The language is at the service of this uh, 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 world representation. Well, in one sense, everything you say is not only true, but so obviously true that I, don't, that I, I still want to pin you down to 
the particular position that, that you are defending. Because up to a point, everyone would say that. Everyone would say that a novel has to be a narrative, that it has to have an action. No one would disagree with that. And yet we know there are divisions or distinctions or various schools of fiction writing. Uh, so that there must be some difference, if you will, between Flaubert and Balzac. And Balzac. Sure, uh, to sure. or, or even the di a difference between Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. Tolstoy took a great deal more care with language than Dostoevsky did, uh, and revised and revised and revised and revised for purely sty quote unquote stylistic reasons. So, if you will, everyone would say that in in, in terms of the gross uh, two-party system of literature, the difference between uh, prose and poetry is that language clearly is primary in poetry if, I might say, if we take lyric poetry as uh, the model for poetry, but if you take epic, epic or narrative, epic, uh, poetry, then, the, then the distinction right, right. and the two-party system in literature begins to break down even there. Uh, whereas the novel, the long fiction, requires the creation of a world, the unfolding or exfoliation of a plot, characters, et cetera, et cetera. No one would deny that. Uh, and that in that sense, language does not function in the same way in a prose work, in, in a prose fiction, as it does, let's say, in the lyric poem. But surely you're saying more than that. You're saying more than that which is the ABC of the distinction between prose and poetry. You are, I think, defending a certain uh, a veristic tradition in fiction, which is... Um, one of the main traditions, but not the only one. You see what I mean? It no, can't no, no, be I, that you, I, I that you are just saying what, what every fiction it, writer would it, agree perfectly. to. Uh, let me say that all the discourse, uh, my discourse, was aiming at suggesting, without negative overtones, but in order to understand the, the, the real point, uh, to understand the real, the real point was that probably uh, Bart couldn't haven't written a novel I because agree. he was too much a great writer. That's the point. Mm -hmm. His love for l'écriture was such that he would have overwhelmed his search for a cosmological construction. Cela dit, uh, uh, I agree with you because also that belongs to the ABC of, uh, uh, of Romanesque mm. aesthetic. Aesthetics that there are novelists that pay more attention mm. to, to, to the linguistic elements and other like Balzac or mm. Dumas that uh, uh, for which language is really a, a, a crude instrument in order to convey uh, facts and stories. And uh, I agree all also on the fact that that probably. If we are still interested in finding aesthetic uh, criteria, a novelist uh, who is able uh, to combine and to balance uh, this uh, love for language uh, with uh, the cosmological ability, this will be the superior novelist uh, in the same way mm -hmm. as Joyce at the end of the portrait says that it will be the, super, the supreme artist, the one who is able to, to, to give the impression of the fading coal mm -hmm. and the theory of the epiphany. And so I, in this sense, in this sense, I, I agree. But um, I insisted on this uh, uh, triviality because sometimes uh, we are struck by two facts. 
that uh, uh, novels can be translated better than poems is a trivial fact. But a good translation of War and Peace gives us a lot of Tolstoy, while a good translation of the Divina Commedia of the Paradise Lost uh, uh, loses a, a lot of, of things. And the other fact is that sometimes we know that certain novels are badly written. Mm -hmm. And they have become so important for our imagination, uh, for, the, for the mankind. They have become myths. They have become a sort of uh, a, a exemplar uh, paradigm of our way of, of living, of believing, even though we know that they were not so really uh, well written. It means that under language, what we ask to a novel is really this construction of a word. This has nothing to do with the veristic uh, uh, narrativity, because there is a cosmological construction even in Tolkien, and uh, we, we, we cannot uh, charge uh, Tolkien with uh, uh, verism. Uh, there is a cosmological construction in, in Borges, Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, there is cosmological construction in Perrault and in Grimm, uh, uh, and, and, and there are fairy tales. So uh, to speak of cosmological construction doesn't mean to speak mm -hmm. of realistic uh, of realistic novel. Uh, it means to well to 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 extend to to the problem of narrativity, the problem of the logic of of possible worlds. Uh, a possible world is a world insofar it is duly furnished and it is not self-contradictory. Uh, to write a novel is to find out a non-self-contradictory world. But what makes some novels, uh, uh, w what gives them their commanding place in, in our consciousness is of course much more than that the worlds are possible, but somehow that this is a world that uh, um, moves us. It's, it's a world which uh, um, we feel required to acknowledge, because often because of a certain, uh, a, a dis a certain quality of suffering uh, that is represented in this world, that the, a quality of the suffering and a quality in the representation of suffering. I'm thinking of a particular novel which I have always thought is one of the great American novels of the 20th century, one of the few great American novels of the 20th century, which is uh, conspicuously badly written, as everyone says. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an exceptional uh, example, and that's an American tragedy of Theodore Dreiser. Mm -hmm. uh, everyone always says, but Dreiser was a bad writer, and yet it seems to me it's it, quite clear that American tragedy is a great novel, uh, that there, there are few well, if you take the 20th century as being after the death of Henry James in 1916, uh, I don't think there is a, gr uh, there is a greater novel in a, uh, written by any American than uh, an American tragedy after 1916, after the Golden Bowl, et cetera, et cetera, uh, though there may be others as great. And yet this is a novel which is exceptionally ill-written, uh, uh, one says, everyone says. Uh, but it is because of the power of that, of that world it's not only that, that Dreiser completely realized a world, but it seems important to acknowledge that world. It seems important to, uh, to be made to suffer uh, for Clyde Griffith. It seems like something one has to undertake, uh, not even that one is necessarily improved by it, but it, it's something that can't be refused, and that, uh, that is a, a, a moral question as well. 
I think that... Uh, but we are saying the same thing. In this yeah, no, I yeah. don't think... I, I, but I think it's more than possibility is what I'm saying. You, you like very much uh, uh, the element of play, and a lot of your, your articles and essays stress the, uh, the playfulness in narrativity. But I think the element of, uh, of pathos, of suffering, is the, is the other side uh, uh, of, the, of, the, of the question of what makes uh, fiction important or necessary to us. I also, I also wanted to perhaps get you to talk about your interest in popular uh, uh, forms. You've written about comic books, you've written about, uh, about Superman in particular, you've written about uh, 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 a particularly wonderful essay on, on uh, uh, Eugène Sue. The, the Les Mystères de Paris, a great, a great 19th century uh, bestseller. You've written about the James Bond, uh, the Iron Fleming books, and so on. You do, you are fascinated, it seems to me, by um, a certain kind of pure narrativity, uh, which, uh, oh, uh, which uses uh, recurrent uh, devices or, or uh, topoi. And this kind of text, which sometimes, and perhaps you could bring in this, this distinction that's been central to a lot of your writing, the difference between the open text and the closed text, I'm not altogether dis convinced by this distinction, because I think that it could almost be reversed. But anyway, the, uh, in, in one way, the closed text is, uh, is the stereotype text, and the open text is the one that keeps adding meanings. The closed text, let's, or, uh, let's say the uh, the, the classical popular genres uh, are ones which, in which the, the, the main pleasures are seeing certain stereotype situations be repeated mm -hmm. again and again. And you make the point, um, I can't remember whether it's about, uh, 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 it's about Eugène Sue, that the characteristic of this kind of popular fiction is precisely that the characters don't evolve. That, uh, uh, the the virtuous person is virtuous at the end and has in fact been virtuous all along. The villain uh, uh, dies uh, uh, without repenting. And then one of the stereotypes of popular fiction is non-changing character. Uh, do you th do you think that in any way this fascinates you? Uh, 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 this is important to you in your own novel, the question of character. Or isn't isn't using the medieval uh, uh, setting and the kind of topoi that that brings in a way also of having these characters not evolve? You have a story told by a narrator who is much older and recalling something that happened when he was very young. It's a story told th through a screen, but Brother William essentially does not evolve. No, no one does. That. Would you say that any of your characters actually evolve? And it's a difficult question because you, you ask me to, to act uh, as a critic of my own book. And uh, I cannot pronounce uh, no, uh, no, no. judgments. Uh, uh, I, I ask you, but you don't have to do it, of course, if you don't I want am to. Convinced not, not, that I am not as a critic, not as an evaluator, but simply as a privileged reader. Do you think that, because <laughs> uh, I'm very sensitive to this issue, I do believe that it's perfectly possible for somebody to understand your book better than you do. Uh, mm. uh, do you think that the non-evolving of characters, let's take it away from your book then, is uh, important for uh, the mass appeal of fiction, uh, the stereotyping of situation and characters, and, do, and therefore, all right, your book, which happens to have had an exceptional and unprecedented success for a book of its quality, 
may partly owe its success to that, that aspect of it. I'm not asking you to either be the critic or the sociologist of your own work. Do you think that characters that evolve uh, uh, cannot therefore be formularized and part of this formulaic uh, uh, mass literature? I think that the mass literature characters shouldn't evolve because uh, these uh, 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 consoles uh, and uh, pl and pleases the laziness of the of the of the reader is very important as in a fair in the fairy tales uh, to to have a, a character which is always recognizable as the same and I have insisted in my analysis of popular narrativity as you said in, in this non evolution in this sense uh, uh, le mystère de paris is ill-written from the stylistic, uh, linguistic point of view, and it is uh, cosmologically unbalanced. In this sense, it's a, it's a bad novel. It got an enormous success. It seems that bad novels get success, but it got an enormous success, but it was a bad novel. Mm -hmm. uh, as far as my uh, novel is concerned, I was pleased when certain critics spoke of spoke of Bildungsroman. Mm -hmm. uh, Bildungsroman is the story oh, of, a, of the a growth of a growth. The education of Adso? It's the, edu the education of Adso. Uh, in my the way I used Adso was uh, it was first of all a, a sort of device that fascinated me to see everything through the eyes of somebody who doesn't understand anything. Huh? I needed a, a stupid viewer who, who was able to tell what happened, but uh, without understanding really what happened. But uh, I, in accompanying these, uh, these acts uh, that during the, the time of writing become a close friend of mine, even probably because I attributed to, to him many elements of my adolescence, of my childhood, of the adolescence of my kids, I don't know. I had the impression that without understanding what happened, uh, Atso underwent a transformation. And this old monk, it's not by chance that the, the last pages is a collage of uh, quotations of uh, Flemish uh, mystics, uh, mm -hmm. from uh, German and Flemish mystics of the end of the 14th century and the beginning of the 15th, from Eckhart to Toiler, Suso, Roisbrock. Uh, the evolution of Atzo was the uh, evolution of a certain religious culture of, of, the, of the period. He started as an educated young uh, novice uh, Benedictine, and he, and he ended as an adept of the Devotio uh, Moderna. He, 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 he started coming out uh, from uh, a painting of Lorenzetti, and he dies in a painting of Hieronymus Bosch. <laughs> I, I don't know if you call it uh, a evolution or an involution, but it's a, it's a change. Well, it's I a think change, and I loved 
to, to follow this, this slow change of, of my stupid character that through his stupidity uh, he repeated in itself a, a certain development of the European culture of the century. I think that what you did, which was so brilliant, was that you really have the best of both worlds. Uh, because it is a, 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 an afterward. When you, when you enter into the consciousness of the old man, uh, uh, you have made this tremendous jump from, from the young adept uh, of most of the story. Because I think uh, most, for most of the story, he is an example of a, um, a formulaic kind of, of presence that's, that's very central to uh, popular literature for which you, you have a, a wonderful uh, word that I, that I, that I have uh, thought of many times. In, in the essay on Superman, you talk about Superman's parsifalism. Uh, that is the, the uh, central role that a perpetually innocent virginal this is uh, a structural necessity. This in is order, a structural necessity. In order necessity. not to change, you, you have not even to make love, not even to reproduce it yourself. That's right. And the, the Parsifalism, because there, there is a Parsifalism in Adso, is what I'm saying also. Uh, uh, and the, uh, we were talking before we, we came here about Serena's Zeitblom, the function of the uh, non-comprehending narrator in Thomas Mann's uh, a magic mountain. But the interesting thing there is that Zeitblom is always old. Uh, uh, it's, it's the consciousness of an older person, uh, of, uh, uh, not only a person who is mediocre in relation to the, the great man he's, he's describing, the, the, the composer uh, Adrian Leverkuhn, but he is never a youthful consciousness. Mm. Uh, what, you've, what you've done in the novel is to have the uh, add so be a youthful consciousness, yeah. therefore to some extent sharing in this quality of parsifalism, and then be able to cap it with another kind of consciousness of, uh, that, that, that is of a later period historically and ideologically and theologically as well. Yes, but parsifalism in my, in my definition of uh, popular culture was uh, Superman is a honest uh, he defends and protects uh, the, 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 the private property and that from the well, beginning. Well, but this is the first the act of Parsifal. This is the first act of only of Parsifal for mm -hmm. Adso. I mean, it, uh, if you will, Brother William is Gurnemans. Uh, no, and I it's mean, only uh, the first I act. Mean, I mean that uh, in, in Adso, the, there is a, a transformation wh which is not Parsifalian at all because it means sex, for mm. instance. And... Uh, well, sex doesn't reveal to him what life is, but it reveals to him what death is. Uh, is That's a, is what a it reveals way to Parsifal to, to discover also. Some, eh? I mean, if it, it, it's also what, what happens to Parsifal. But you are asking if my answer is a Parsifal or if it suffer of the Parsifalism uh, mm. as uh, the category I invented for right. Superman. So we, we, we are okay, maneuvering to different categories. That's right. That's right. He is a Parsifal. Maybe he's not an example of Parsifalism, but he has some Parsifal quality. When Parsifal is invited to make love uh, in, in the second act, he says, divunda, divunda, yes. he discovers death. Well, I, 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 this yeah. is, a, is, a, is a critic judgment on my novel, and uh, I cannot take part in the discussion, but I understand, okay. I understand your point. I, 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 I like 
I like it, but I insist that when I use the word Parsifalism for, for popular narrativity, I use it in a derogatory uh, way. An impossibility to change and things in human life, the, 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 the most uh, rapid way to change is to reproduce itself. The Because I was reacting to a certain interpretation according to which all the uh, characters of the comic books from uh, from uh, Batman, uh, Green Arrow, uh, Superman, and so all uh, dressed with collant, very, very, very androgyn, they were all homosexual. And I said, no, it's too much to, 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 to think that they are homosexual. It's not that they don't make love because they are homosexual and they always have a pal friend they they cannot make love they cannot marry because otherwise the story will make a step forward in and time time cannot, will become it real cannot the same reason by which at the end of le mystère de paris uh, fleur de marie once uh, she becomes uh, the, 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 the the recognized daughter of, of the of the king of the of the prince of uh, rodolphe of of gerolstein must die she dies because uh, uh, it, it would have been too provocative in the in the well-educated world of 19th century to put a prostitute on the throne in order to avoid this transformation of a person which was also a, a social transformation the acceptation of the social redemption of the marginalized prostitute she had to die that was another form of pacifism to to stop to stop her growth to stop aging to stop time to stop time to stop time that's mm -hmm. Parsifalism, which mm -hmm. has nothing to do with with with, with, with Parsifal. Parsifal. Good, with I Parsifal. accept that. <laughs> That's, I mean, Parsifalism is little orphanani. Oh yes, uh, for uh, example, orphanani is yes. totally uh, yes. Parsifalistic because <laughs> she 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 keeps going for for, <laughs> for eons and and and, and right. eons, and the Parsifalism of the of the um, popular story. Uh, um, uh, provokes uh, uh, many times a, a, a sort of, uh, of habit of feedback. Mm -hmm. Since you cannot make the story to proceed, you said, oh, uh, and I forgot to tell you that uh, before it happened that, mm -hmm. uh, I, I found it in the, in the saga of, uh, of a Superman, but you find it in, in, in a Jeanne in in Jean Su. Mm -hmm. But in, in every series, uh, it, it, when you uh, write the new story of James Bond, it is not the new story happening now. But you, you, it's like you said, oh, I, I forgot to tell you mm, that uh, in, in, in 55, Meanwhile in it happened also that. So it's a continuous jumping backwards on time in order to provide new story without, without making Making the general curb of entropy to 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 to, to proceed mm. and to co co consume according to the second principle of thermo. There is no second principle of thermodynamics in popular narrativity. Mm -hmm. There is no consummation. There is no final fire. Mm -hmm. That's why we have all these sequel movies now in Hollywood. 
Yeah. We can go on forever. A Rocky 19, etc. I want to ask and just I one. And I set fire to my abbey in order to to celebrate the second principle of the uh, Well, uh, I know. There obviously will be no name of the rose, too. We, with that, we know. May I ask you just one more, bring up one more topic, and then we'll open it to, to uh, the, the questions on the floor. You, you said earlier that um, you thought of your scholarly uh, work, uh, I'm trying to avoid the technical language like uh, semiotics and so on, as uh, <coughs> uh, forms, uh, they, were, they, they part partook in the, uh, of the character of, of detec detection, and that you liked even to show the steps whereby you had arrived at a, at a, uh, a certain result, whether you were analyzing a 19th century novel or uh, um, uh, some medieval frescoes or work of James Joyce or whatever. Do you feel uh, 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 that, well, if you are committed to th uh, the idea that the uh, uh, that meaning accumulates and that you can f that you can construct models which will um, uh, reveal meaning and con and interconnections be between parts of a text, and a text can be obviously either verbal or nonverbal. Do you feel there is any uh, uh, basis to the criticism that is often made of this kind of intellectual work? that you are not actually better understanding the book. Uh, you, are, you, are, you are substituting a new uh, uh, intellectual construction. Uh, this, is a, uh, this is something that has been said, uh, well, I'll take an example that's not your work. Barthes, S-Z, S-Z. Uh, here is a very short work of, of uh, uh, Balzac, a long short story which was the subject of a line-by-line -line exegesis, rather complex exegesis by Barth, that's considerably longer no. than, than the text of Balzac. You have uh, written uh, a very long and complicated text, which even ends in, in uh, formulations that use a, a uh, logical notation to describe a, a four-page four uh, skit intellectual skit by a minor French uh, writer called uh, Alphonse Allais that, was, that Breton made famous in his uh, anthology of black humor. Do you, th do you think that there's any, uh, any justification in the argument that this is not so much detection? After all, the model of detection always suggests that the detective is finding out what is there, explaining a mystery. Uh, whereas many people would say that this kind of intellectual work is simply creating a larger and more complex object that replaces the original text. Are you speaking against the interpretation? <laughs> I'm asking. <laughs> I'm uh, <coughs> well. No, I'm not. I'm. I'm asking you whether you think that the creation of such complex models. Mm. It's not a question of interpretation. The creation of such complex models to designate the structure uh, of a work is really uh, necessary to understand the work. Uh, well, we are dealing with the problem of interpretation. But of interpretation, let's say, in, uh, in the Charles Sanders Peirce uh, sense, uh, the sense in which the life of a semiosis, our exchange of sign, is such that every sign has to be interpreted by another sign. Uh, 
With the text, there are only two alternatives. Either you let it there without reading it, without reading it, or you read it. My idea is that the text is a lazy machinery full of empty space and asking for a cooperative, in, uh, for, a, for a collaboration on the part of the reader. Some, I call interpretation this, this collaboration, to, to, to make this text, which is a dumb, mute uh, surface, to, to become content, meaning. There are texts that can be interpreted by summaries and texts that must be interpreted by expansions. Take uh, Corneille, Qu'il mourut, the old uh, Horace is told that two of his sons are dead and that the third one, instead of facing the, the, the curias, the enemies, is, uh, is, uh, is escaping. We know afterwards that he was escaping in order to, uh, to separate them and to, and to uh, face uh, each of them uh, uh, separately in order to, 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 to kill them and, and to win. But when they go to the father of uh, Horace and say, he, he is, is a coward, he is escaping. And he said, qu'il mourut. Even if I try to translate this, qu'il mourut, this is a terrible uh, conjunctive uh, uh, form in, in English, I, I have to expand it. I would have preferred he died instead of showing his cowardice. Hmm? But this is not only that. You know that pages and pages and pages have been written about the sublimity of this condensed expression in which with two words, kill, trois, three, 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 three. que il mourut, you have a, an, an, an entire vision of, of the world, the sense of, uh, of, uh, of uh, ethic, of glory, or are you entitled to expand qu'il mourut, or do you think you have to leave it there? But I, I, I don't say to expand it verbally in a critical essay. In your mind, when you read it, what happens in your mind? I think that in your mind there is a blowing up and an immense expansion of meaning, of inference, uh, of consequence, uh, illative, uh, illative uh, enchainment of new, of new ideas. You are interpreting and you are expanding it. And at the end you have finally understood what Corneille meant. Therefore, sometimes for certain texts it's, it's necessary to write uh, 300 pages upon three lines. And it is not a, 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 a illicit uh, initiative on the part of the critic. It's exactly what the text asked. It was there in order to provoke this uh, uh, continuity of interpretation.
Then we, we can decide, well, that's too much. Uh, uh, Bart could have written as Z in, 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 in 25 pages instead of 250. You can prefer one kind of interpretation instead of another. I think that the best essay on Hamlet is the one uh, of Eliot, uh, in which he says Hamlet uh, is a failure. In, in three pages, he liquidates Hamlet in such a way that you say, how beautiful Hamlet is. No? So sometimes you have a beautiful uh, a critical page that tells more than, than, than three volumes, and sometimes three volumes uh, are, are needed as a matter of, of judgment, case by case, but I don't think we can elaborate a general theory which uh, decides uh, how much a text must be expanded or condensed. Would you uh, extend that uh, position to include the formulization in logical terms of, of, of logical models? Because it's one thing to write 250 pages of text, but uh, some of your work is in logical notation. No, only the case you quoted. And for the French and German translation, I have eliminated the, 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 the logical <laughs> formula because I understood that they were completely useless. So it was because it the lay that it's not that the text is lazy; it's that the reader is lazy. I don't see how you. But I am sure that in order to explain why the text of Alphonse Allais was so puzzling, I needed my 50 pages. Mm -hmm. Why do you say a text is lazy? Oh, be, be, because a text says, uh, uh, I, I. Uh, I wanted to see my beloved, and I I went to to the Connecticut, and you know, <laughs> and you know that he went to the cent Grand Central Station and he took the train, but the text doesn't say. But, but, but uh, that's called writing. Eh? That's called writing, leaving yeah. out. That's right. It's not yeah. lazy. That's what writers struggle to do: is leave out the the right things. Put well, in the right I things and leave I the right I things I out. I, I, I call it uh, provocatively a, 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 mm. a lazy machinery in order to say that writing, writing means to elicit, uh, elicit uh, all the background uh, of, your, uh, of your knowledge in order to make the text to say what the text linear surface does. So then say. the text is transforming literature into non-literature, because since the, the literature is always leaving out and scruple and discrimination and uh, refinement. Probably when I say text uh, and when you say literature, we are saying the same hmm. thing. Uh, the, the only difference uh, is that I am assuming that this laziness or this hmm. leaving away belongs to any text, not only to literary texts. Literary texts are those who make this game uh, in, a, in, a, well, in, in a better way and elicit your response uh, according to, to, to certain rules and to certain uh, general uh, tendencies. But uh, every text, uh, you, 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 you speak with me by telephone and you say, oh, come immediately. Uh, you, you are understanding that uh, either I have to, to, to take the, the, the subway or, 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 or cab, because I, otherwise I couldn't come immediately. Uh, we, we are always uh, acting with this laziness, because we know that the other is cooperating. Uh, the literariness, or the literaturnost, is a, a special kind of appeal for collaboration, and probably is an appeal for a free collaboration. Because if by telephone I tell you, come immediately, I, I, I 
I clearly, univocally mean and want you to understand that I ask you to take a cab. While, uh, because there is no, 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 other, no other possibility to, to, to come immediately. Uh, while in a, in, a, in, a, in a literary text, those empty sp spaces, those interstices are, are conceived in order to elicit multiple interpretations, uh, uh, infinite uh, 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 collaborations. And when you are in face of such a, mach a machinery, you are scandalized because the poor bar spends only 200 pages in order to fill up all those gaps. 2,000. There are still 2,000. 20,000 pages to write to, to explain why SZ has the charm it has. Well, I, I now know what you mean by cosmology. <laughs> All right, I think we should uh, get some questions from, from the, the audience. And uh, I think it would be useful if the, if the questions really were questions uh, rather than statements. And I think it's, uh, that, that uh, it should be clear to everyone here that Umberto Eco is not going to uh, 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 explain uh, the, the name of the rose. So uh, if, if I would want to Too lazy. discourage. Too lazy. <laughs> we have a case of the lazy writer. Uh, uh, we have had now the lazy, the lazy text, and now we have a case of the lazy writer. He does not want to explain why he did this or that in his novel, clearly. He does not want to be the uh, critic uh, as he just put it, of his own book. But uh, I'm sh since he's interested in everything, and so am I, I'm sure he will entertain other sorts of questions. Uh, but since you have here uh, Susan, you, you can also make questions to Susan. <laughs> right, okay. Uh, so I am so lazy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and if you want to, to uh, ask a question, that the two mics here are for your use. Yes. Mike, can you hear me? My question's addressed to Mr. Echo, and it's about the, uh, the novel, which seems it's a 600-page masterful work of literature, and although, it, and it's hard to believe that the English translation is that much better than the, the Italian original, uh, could you enlighten us how uh, you came to, without it, it's your first novel, how it, it came sort of full-blown into such a masterful work that, in other words, did you have, did, did you make attempts earlier in your career to write short stories or write a novel? Did you have a lot of editorial help along the way? Uh, mm. How did it, uh, it, it it's, was it a creation ex nihilo? Uh, enlighten us about the background because it just seems to need, uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's hard to believe a professor could suddenly emerge with this uh, masterpiece. You see, probably I am a genius because, uh, <laughs> as you suggested, because as uh, every human animal, I wrote poetry between 16 and 18 by <laughs> differently from many other human animals, more animals than myself, I had the courage of destroying everything because I discovered it was not a poet at all. And so between 16 and 18, I wrote also short story and I destroyed them. So I had only, if you want, a, 
an experience in what is called uh, creative writing, a book, uh, Diario Minimo, which are literary pastiche. Uh, it was uh, written during the, the, the late 50s and early 60s. Uh, some of them have been translated in a re magazine, Chelsea, years ago in English. For instance, in one of them, I read Manzoni's Promessi Sposi as it was the last work of James Joyce. Uh, in another one, I invented uh, uh, Theodor Wiesengrund Adorno living at mm -hmm. the age of Pericles uh, mm -hmm. and uh, criticizing the mass culture of the classical Greece. Uh, in another, I, made, uh, in another I, I wrote Nonita. Uh, it was the time of Lolita, uh, gr uh, uh, grandmother in, uh, in, in Italian is Nonna. So Nonita was the story of a man called, obviously, Umberto Umberto, <laughs> who, who, who loved only ladies beyond the 80s. Then there was another pastiche uh, which was, I don't remember exactly, it was a, so that were my, my only real experiences in, uh, in, in pseudo-narrative uh, narrative activity. I remember that a uh, good friend of mine, a good friend of us, Luciano Berio, told me years ago, why don't you write a novel? And I said, why? Because I have the impression you could write a novel. He said, no, I, I'll be completely incapable. I, I don't know how to, 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 to deal with dialogues, how to make people to, 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 to speak and so. so uh, five minutes before starting, uh, I was uh, convinced that I had not to write a novel, and I was not able to do it. Uh, this is the only, uh, as a matter of fact, I can, I can, so there was no previous, uh, uh, no previous um, experience. So the only uh, good suggestion I can give to novelists, except uh, if they are so skilled like uh, Susan, is right after your 50s. Uh -huh. and, uh, uh, once uh, in an interview, they asked me, uh, oh, uh, what kind of suggestion you can give to a, to a young writer? I said, don't write, call by telephone. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just wanted to add that uh, in, in the, uh, there is a, um, Umberto Eco has written an essay about, uh, well, about the writing of the name of the rose. Uh, some excerpts of that were in the Sunday Times in the book section about two weeks ago. Uh, and, it's, and it's come out as a little book published by, by uh, Harcourt Brace Jovanovich, uh, which, in which he talks about around. some, yes, about no, around. about, uh, talks around, uh, 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 no, I want to say about, it's my, it's my preposition. He talks about some of the choices that he made, uh, 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 and uh, the, the, the let's say the advantages of the and the disadvantages of the 14th century about certain kinds of research, uh, cosmos building, the that he that he did, um, uh, and and what's very impressive, of course, that, never mind the question about what he had done before, is the the kind of uh, the degree to which the world of the novel is concretely imagined. I was very struck uh, uh, where he describes 
that when the people are walking around in the abbey, you know, as, as all of you know, it takes, most of it takes place in a Benedictine abbey in the 14th century, and they walk from, uh, let's say, a, a given doorway uh, 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 down a hall uh, 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 and up a stairs, that the dialogue that the characters have is the dialogue that they could have if they were walking uh, at, a, at a normal uh, pace uh, in, the, in that space, that he had an, a, a detailed plan of the abbey, and he actually knew how much you could say if you walked down a given hall or walked up a given staircase. Uh, so this is, I, I think, the, the, the notions that he was explaining about building a world, uh, the novel as a, as a cosmological activity, are very interestingly uh, talked around or described in in this little book, which is a which is a long essay. No, I can add. If you want something which is not in, in the in the book, but uh, after having written the novel, I read the proceedings of a congress on the uh, spirituali, on the mm -hmm. fraticelli, the spiritual side of the Franciscans. Uh, I, I came across to, to to this book later. And and I discovered that many disciples of uh, Pietro di Giovanni Olivi, a group of uh, spirituali of uh, Provence, um, after the disillusion of their impossible dream, after the collapse of their possible religious revolution, when they discovered that it was, there was nothing to do, the power was too strong, uh, they emigrated, either physically or culturally, in England and followed the English Franciscans in their researches on natural science. They did what many people of the 68 uh, did uh, when they discovered that Marxism, uh, at least for them, was a rue sans issue. They uh, went to yoga or to Freudism or something else. And I realized that it was the, the path followed by my main character. And why my main character did what, what they really did in the, in the real history. But because if you build up your world mm. with certain premises, and certain elements, the, the logic of the events cannot be but that, uh, uh, that, uh, that one. And once again, it's not a veristic assumption. If you invent uh, uh, the world uh, of Earth, sea of uh, Ursula Le Guin, and you decide that the drakes and the, uh, the have a certain habits, they cannot do but what a real drake will do, who has done when they existed. That is, uh, to me, the internal logic of a, of a world. Of a fully realized world. Of a fully realized world. So I read very little of Ubertino da Casale. And then I attributed to him certain characteristics. And after my book was published, it was published a very important, huge monography on Ubertino da Casale. This author had worked uh, probably 20 years. Mm. And he was so happy to publish his book after mine, because before only 300 persons knew mm. Ubertino da Casale, and at the point he was confident that some more. And I discovered that the real Ubertino uh, 
di Casale was very similar to my, to my own. And I was very happy because uh, I was faithful to, to, to the world I, I set up. And I set up this world by using the remnants and the elements of the real uh, medieval world. That in order to insist on this cosmological uh, uh, aspect. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. We, well, okay, you first. Yeah, in science, we're also, uh, well, we spend a lot of time trying to explicate kind of lazy texts. We'll take a, a body or a cell or a hydrogen atom and, and explicate it for volumes and volumes. And, and it's also like a detective story where you go through the steps. And I wonder if you think that these similarities between that kind of explication and the the critical analysis that both of you are more familiar with are, are superficial, or is there something very deep going on there? No, there is no. something very deep, yes. and I give you an interesting bibliographical clue. Uh, we, and by we I mean my colleague Thomas Sibeok and myself, we have just edited a few months ago a book published by Indiana University Press. The title is The Sign of Three. Uh, is a collection of essays written by logicians, scientists, historians, all dealing with the method of Sherlock Holmes. But the method of Sherlock Holmes is a pretext in order to show that a, a, certain, uh, a, a certain mental procedure that is what the Peirce called abduction, Sherlock Holmes was so ignorant to believe that it was deduction, but it was not deduction at all, is at work in a detection story in the discovery of Kepler, in the research of the historian. And uh, I consider this book very important. It's not a, 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 a piece of fanship uh, for Sherlock Holmes, but um, in, 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 as a matter of fact, there are two beautiful essays of Jaco Hintica uh, and uh, other epistemologists. It is a way to show that uh, a, a certain conjectural thought is at work in the same way in the scientific discovery, in the medical detection, in the psychoanalytical interrogation, in the detection story, in criticism, in literary criticism, in philology, in the way in which the philologist fills up the gap of an old manuscript, conjecturing that the empty space could have been so and so and so. So the, the similarity is uh, more uh, profound than, than, than believed. I am. I am contrary to the idea that there are two cultures. Absolutely. Yes. Both of, you, both of you were talking about narrative and novel in one breath. And I was thinking about the modern novel, especially of Middle Europe, um, novels like Milan Kundera's or Peter Hanke's, where narrative is really not, or the cosmological view that Umberto was talking about, is not really the structure uh, or the format of the novel. Uh, my question to you, do you think that a narrative is a sine qua non for novel? That is, a, is an interesting question, because not only the, the novels you quoted, but uh, a lot of uh, modern narrativity, modern so-called novels, uh, let's say from Finnegan's Wake to the Nouveau Roman, uh, give the impression not to be narrative and not to have a uh, well 
constructed the cosmos behind. I would like, and but I, I would like that uh, Susan too uh, gives her impression on, on, on this point because it seems to me very important, a very important critical point. But I think we have to separate the problem of narrativity from the problem of the cosmos. Finnegan's Wake has a cosmological construction behind. This cosmos is different from the one we are accustomed to recognize as a cosmos. Well, it's circular rather than linear, for it's instance. Circular rather than linear, rhizomatic uh, rather mm. than uh, uh, tree-like. Mm. But there, there is. The, we can conceive of an anti-cosmos, eh? and the cosmological construction can consist in destroying every point of cosmological reference. That's one point. And so-called modernism, I mean, would you say naively, as the naive visitor of the museum, would you say that, that Les Demoiselles d'Avignon are unshaped? Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's an old mistake. They have their own shape. It's another idea of shape, another conception of shape. The problem of narrativity as a sequence of action is uh, uh, another one. And because uh, typical of the avant-garde uh, uh, novel has been the idea of destroying the narrative sequence because the narrative sequence was identified with a sort of search quest for an order and for a final satisfactory solution and response. And in this sense, well, labels are labels. We can say that all those uh, novels are not narrative, and therefore are not novels, are something, something else. And uh, the, the problem of so-called uh, postmodern, but I am very uh, prudent in using uh, this term uh, of new narrativity, is a sort of way of finding, a, a, again, the taste for narrative, but having lost, uh, first, the innocence, uh, and the second, having lost uh, the idea that the sequence of action has to be uh, fulfilled uh, in, a, in, a, in a sort of final, satisfactory uh, solution. And a solution can be final and satisfactory even if the hero dies, like, like the 19th uh, century. Uh, well, I, I try to make a, 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 a novel which is very narrative, but there is no final discovery, no final p punishment, no final satisfaction. No, <laughs> you, you can find a, a new narrativity which is not a, the old narrativity. Now, the problem is only an editorial one. Can we call novels, those modernistic novels that have destroyed narrativity? That's a, it's a commercial problem only. Uh, well, m I prefer to, to, to give to give the not the floor, the table to Susan because uh, in my recent book on narrativity, I, I said that I have a very wide notion of narrativity, and I proposed as a good example of narrativity the beginning of the Etica of Spinoza. Um, uh, it's not necessary that there are 
human individual making actions. You can have a great narrativity of ideas. In this sense, Descartes, Le Discours de la Méthode, is a great piece of, uh, of, of detection story and narrativity. He's moving in, in, into the dark. Nothing is clear. He doesn't understand anything. He's even uh, suspecting that a malin genie he, is cheating him. And finally, cogito ergo sum. It's, it's pure Hitchcock. It's pure Hitchcock. It's a great piece of narrativity. But my notion of narrativity is a very Catholic one, as you see. <laughs> Let's have some more questions. Yes. Um, critics have also said that your, there is a subtext in Name of the Rose, which is um, a discussion of modern Italian politics, or at least the decade of the 70s. I'm wondering if you intended that, if perhaps William was ahead of his time, or what was going on? Did you want to talk about recent Italian politics while talking about the medieval politics? Once uh, uh, Benedetto Croce, that I don't like, uh, said the right thing. As a matter of fact, he said the two right things. The first is the first duty of young people is to become older. And <laughs> great, uh, and I have practiced this idea, and I am uh, succeeding. Um, uh, the second is every history, and he meant by history, every act of, of historiography is contemporary history. Uh, from, from Herodotus to Gibbon, from Gibbon to, to Ranke, from Ranke to, to Le Goff. You cannot uh, tell about uh, a, a past period, reconstructing it, if not moved by, by a point of view, a perspective, a certain, a certain interest. So every book of history, not only an historical novel, but every book of history can be read uh, with uh, references to, to our contemporary uh, work. Then if you ask me to entitle you to, to find uh, keys and uh, allegories, you know, once I have been psychoanalyzed by Lacan, free, the only person, <laughs> the only person in the world which has been, who has been psychoanalyzed by Lacan, free, because he didn't know he was analyzing me. <laughs> it was at a dinner. <laughs> and I had, at the time, as every human being, a personal problem. And we were speaking about the subject X. And Lacan said ABC. I, I want to, to, to tell the whole story. <laughs> ABC. And as he said ABC, I said, oh my God, <sighs> ABC is very, very important for my problem. And, and so I, I, I asked, but why did you say ABC? He said, I didn't say ABC. <laughs> I, I said, please, you said that, that oh yes, and that, yes, and that, yeah. therefore the conclusion is ABC. He said, not at all. If you understood ABC, it was because you were motivated to understand ABC. That ruined my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
And uh, so if you find the elements connecting my book to, to, to contemporary life, is because you are motivated in doing so. Oh, Umberto, you're, ter you're a terrible sophist. Oh, no, no, I can't let you, I've gotten, I've let you get away with so much this evening, but I can't let you get away with that, because you're on record as having said that you started by, by writing a, a contemporary novel, and then you had that wonderful phrase saying that, that what you... And then you had that, that wonderful phrase saying that, that what you finally realized, why should you write about contemporary Italian life, which you know only indirectly, that is by television, when you can write about the Middle Ages, which you know directly, that is through books. Uh, so, uh, so of course you, you know perfectly well that there is a subtext. That, that doesn't mean that you have to uh, um, um, talk about it, but it's... Yeah, <laughs> but, well, I, I have but there is a reference because I some of the inspiration and that some of the, some passages in the novel are very, cle sure, very clearly referred. Every history is contemporary history. I told it uh -huh. at the beginning. Right. I told it at the beginning. But I have to find with, with people uh, who, who, who look for the for one-to-one the -one correspondence. Nobody here is going to make such a no, vulgar mistake. No, but <laughs> but uh, myself, I was struck by uh, correspondences I was not looking for. I told the story of the heretical Dolcino, who was organizing uh, armed bands and making revolution, and he came from Trento, and his wife was called Margherita. And everybody in Italy knew that uh, the founder of the Red Brigades came from the University of Trento, and his wife was Margherita Cagol. But I swear that this is in rerum italicarum uh, scriptore, uh, scriptores of Ludovico Antonio Muratori, chronica of uh, uh, dell'anonimo sincro. It was in the documents. So the, the only thing you can ask me, why did you quote? the name uh, of the wife of Dolcino. If the name was, instead of Margherita uh, uh, Desdemona, would you, <laughs> would you have quoted it uh, uh, with the same evidence? Well, I take the Fifth Amendment. <laughs> <laughs> if I can just go back for a moment to the, the, the question about uh, uh, narrativity. Uh, Somebody here uh, said, well, what about Kundera? What about Hanke? Well, they're, they're so different that I don't think that they should be discussed together. But at, at any rate, about Kundera, I think it's very clear that these are narratives. Um, talking about the later books, like uh, uh, the early ones obviously are. But the, these more ambitious recent books, uh, uh, Laughter and Forgetting and, and uh, The Unbearable Lightness of Beginning, are books which, which certainly are cosmological in the, in the sense that they presuppose a very exactly imagined real world. And then they proceed in, in a way, I think, that's like a great deal of fiction in this century. That, that Kundra is not, his, Kundra's virtue is not his originality, I think. Uh, he's in a great modernist tradition. They proceed in something that might be called a, 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 a literary equivalent of Cubism. Uh, and, uh, it occurs to me because you mentioned Les, Les Demoiselles d'Avignon. That is, it is perfectly possible to make a narrative by looking uh, uh, at, from several angles at the same event or collection of events so that you might indeed uh, have a, the literary equivalent of a, a face that has three eyes and two noses. 
but the, the, the notion of, of multiple portrait, portraiture, and there is a, a, obviously implicitly here a notion of spatial form, uh, uh, as many people, uh, including the, uh, Joseph Frank in the famous essay of, of 1945, have pointed out. Exactly. Exactly. That what that once that there is a way of 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 complicating narration by spatializing it, uh, so that it consists of of overlapping or contrasting points of view, and and there surely is starting with Flaubert, if not earlier, um, a tradition of narrativity which seems anti-narrative, but it isn't. It's simply uh, complex in that way, and it's counterbalanced by. I think very strong uh, linear uh, narrative traditions that are in uh, uh, detective fiction, uh, in uh, all kinds of uh, speculative fictions, including so-called science fiction, is something, however, like Beckett. Let's say is a, is a is a um, um, the rendering of a soul landscape uh, of a state of consciousness. A great deal of of serious contemporary fiction does seem to be primarily concerned with that. Can that be called a narrative? Uh, is there a narrative in in certain of the texts of Hanke? Is there a narrative? Uh, is there an entropic narrative uh, in which what you essentially see? Beckett, of course, would be the prime example. Uh, so the running down of consciousness, a sort of uh, 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 a microanalysis of senescence which is, by the way, a very Flaubertian subject. So Flaubert was, as we know from his letters, uh, absolutely fascinated by uh, mental sluggishness, by the, by the notion of, of, of premature or precocious senescence. And, and Beckett is kind of, poet of uh, prose poet of senility or senescence. Is that narrative material? I think, it, I think it's broad enough, uh, your notion of narration and mine, to include that as well. Yeah, uh, you know that... Uh, uh, the problem, what is narrative? Uh, uh, recently, and I mean in the last uh, 10 years, have been published at least uh, 25 interesting books uh, defining uh, what are the, the primeval elementary conditions for narrativity. There must be a subject. There must be a sequence of actions. But according to certain theories, there must be at a certain point an alternative where the choice is not so obvious where the choice is not so obvious. If there is that, there is narrativity. If not, but if you accept this definition, which is the one of Turn van Dijk, the first chapter of the Genesis is not narrativity, because we have a subject acting, making certain choice, but since he was building up the best of the possible worlds, his choice was obvious. There was not alternative. And would you deny that the first chapter of the Genesis is not a marvelous piece of narrativity? So uh, we start this discourse on the elementary condition for narrativity, uh, the, 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 and so probably the, our friends, the publishers are right, they put novel, and they sell it as a novel, and it goes, and habent sua fata libelli. Anyway, I think all writers have a vested interest in making as, as broad a, a, a notion of narrativity, as inclusive a, a notion as possible. We are going to have a, a more informal way of talking and meeting in a reception uh, following our 
being in this hall, and so we have to close so that we still have time for that, but I think w there would be time to take one more question, if there is one. Yes. The question I want to ask is about semiology, and I don't know. You have to talk a little louder. I think if it's hard for us to hear, I think it must be hard for them too. Uh, the question I want to ask is about semiology. And there's not much that I've studied, uh, so sir, about. But um, do you think there could be a semiotics of sound? That the question is, c could there be a semiotics of sound? In other words, can sound uh, be a text? Uh, I, I assume you mean sound rather than music. Y you mean in the sense of the music? The sound of words, as uh, I was taught to read phonetically, and that the phonetic context of words if they would be a, a signified and a signifier to those phonetic uh, junctions that somehow words become attached to us as we grow up because these sounds are in some way ossified within us as we grow older. Am I being not clear at all? Let's hear the... Um, uh, let's hear the answer. Hmm? Let's hear the answer. No, not I, I, the I don't understand clearly the, the question because either it is too much easy or too much difficult. If it is too much easy, it means that uh, there, there are uh, uh, semiotic analysis of sound phenomena in, in, in phonology and phonetics and in what is called uh, paralinguistics or tonemics in which they study uh, the, the, the meaning of uh, pitches uh, and uh, intonations, and there is a, a lot of literature. There are the last uh, researches of uh, Ivan Funaj on the, on the, uh, on the, uh, on the psychoanalytic basis of a phonation and things like that. So uh, in this sense, the question is easier, easy because there is an, a bibliography of some thousand volumes. <laughs> if you were meaning something else, the question is difficult, and I am unable to answer. All right, uh, but before giving the the, the, the word to, to 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 Susan, that I suppose is is has to conclude, I want to say one thing and and uh, and warmly that I I I love and I admire Susan since so much time that it has been a, a great privilege for me this evening to, 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 have, to have her as my Sherlock Holmes, my detective, my great inquisitor. And uh, <laughs> I, f for this privilege, I'm also ready to go to the stake. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>